The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Our scripture passage today is Luke chapter 8, and we'll begin with verse 22. Uh, John will be preaching starting in verse 22 through the rest of the chapter, um, but I will just be reading verses 22 through 39. Please stand with me. Luke 8, 22. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command him them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. wraps on this little two-chapter section. We've been talking about the Savior's great salvation now uh, for two whole chapters, chapter 7 and chapter 8. This is Luke's intention, wanting to bring us to the place where we have deep-seated conviction concerning Jesus as the great Savior that we need. The sermon title this morning, as we looked at these snapshots, you saw the snapshot of the 12 disciples in a boat, you saw a snapshot of the demoniac, And as Tara said, we're actually going to carry on through the end of the chapter. We're going to be looking at a very distraught dad. We're also going to be looking at a woman. We don't know her name, um, but she also um, had a deep-seated need for Jesus. And what all of them are going to show us is the the Savior's great salvation. If you want to summarize the golden thread that weaves its way throughout these four snapshots, it comes down to this, that Jesus is the Savior that I can trust to save. That's what saviors do. Sometimes, though, we struggle to believe that. We struggle to trust that. Yeah? Anyone else in that boat? Know Jesus as a Savior? Struggle to trust that he can save you in certain situations? 
And I think what Luke is doing is he's graciously holding us by the hand and he's going to lead us once again to see something true, that Jesus is the Savior that you, that I can trust to save in all sorts of different scenarios. Saving from this disordered creation, saving from the devil, saving from disease, saving us from death. So I'm going to hit pause. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask for the the Holy Spirit to do his work. Um, I want to give you some handles for how to pray here. Sometimes it's easy for pastors just to say, hey, everybody pray. And then sometimes uh, we don't always quite know uh, how to pray or what to pray for. And so I want to give you to give you some handles here. It's easy to hear, is it not? Sometimes it's very hard to apply. Amen? We can hear all kinds of stuff, but then go like, I'm not quite sure how this works in my life. And I was just thinking this past week, and I was sort of convicted that we bypass or so often forget that the Holy Spirit loves to apply the scriptures to our hearts and to our minds. And so why don't we ask him for these things? Jesus says over and over again, you have not because you ask not. And so I think it's good for us to say, Lord, I show up on Sunday morning and Pastor Jonathan preaches, he says words, I hear them, my mind is working, I understand them, but like I struggle a lot to know how to take what is heard and apply it in the next six days and 22 hours. And then so often we just let it drop like that. But I think the invitation of the scriptures is we don't want to just be hearers of the word, but as we heard from last week from Jesus' own mouth, those who are in the Jesus family hear his word and seek to do it. And so let's just ask the Holy Spirit right now, would you help us to apply the words we hear this morning so that we're not just hearers, but we're doers and we're able to be doers because graciously and kindly the good Father heard our prayer and the Holy Spirit comes and says, this is what these words mean for you on Monday, means for your Tuesday meeting means for the discipline that you're leading your children through or the Advent devotional or the conversation with your neighbor or fill in the blank. Amen? You understand what we're aiming at here? Okay, that's the bullseye. So let's pull it back. Let's launch some prayers at it to the Father and let's ask the Holy Spirit to do his work, okay? So here we go. Father, thank you. Our aim is to see you glorified this morning, right now, for the preaching of your word. Jesus, you are the Son You're the Savior. You are God Most High. Our aim is to see you receive the worship you are worthy to receive through the preaching of the Word. Holy Spirit, we are asking you to do what you love to do, which is to help us not only see Jesus, but to help us understand these words and then apply them to our lives. Lord, so often in my life, Pastor Jonathan's life, I have not because I ask not. So Lord, as a child of yours, I am coming to you with arms open, with the receiving posture of my hands saying, Lord, I need you to help. Help me not only preach now, but help me to apply the own message that's about to come out of my mouth. And that's what I pray for those who are hearing, listening to your word this morning. Lord, would you grant the good gift of words heard and then the word of God applied to our lives in specific, concrete ways. So as the Jesus people, we would hear the word of God and then go happily, joyfully doing what we've heard. Help us, Lord Jesus. It's in the name, your name, I pray. Amen. Here's what I want you to do. Maybe you're writing these words down. Maybe you've got a phenomenal memory and you can just store these away. But if these six words stay on the forefront of your mind, I think they're going to serve you well because these are words that Luke is weaving throughout every single one of these four interactions that Jesus is about to have. It's these words here. It's the word fear. 
It's the word falling, the word begging, authority, faith, and salvation. It's the word fear. It's the word falling. You're going to see people falling down before Jesus. You're going to see the word begging showing up as people fall before Jesus, begging him to do something. You're going to see this idea of authority over and over again. You're going to see this dual response of faith and salvation. Jesus saving people and then seeing their response of faith interwoven between these things. Now, fear falling, begging authority, faith and salvation. Put those words in your mind. Now, what I want you to do is set those words on sort of the table of your mind. And what I want you to do now is think about Plato. All right, little kids, Play-Doh. You understand what I'm talking about, right? Multiple colors. Pop the cap in your mind right now. Can you smell it? It's the Play-Doh smell right now. It's wafting up into, into your nose right now. They're brand new Play-Doh canisters in your hand. They're nice. They're neat, pristine, virgin cans of Play-Doh. Never been touched. Brand new. There they are in their separate colors, still in those little cylindrical shapes that you can pluck out of the little plastic canisters. Now, in your mind's eye, what I want you to do is to take all those canisters of Play-Doh and I want you to start smashing and smushing them together. Some of us, we're already starting to black out a little bit, right? You're like, oh man, like this is just, like you're the people who don't put Thanksgiving's coming. You're the people who don't let other things on your plate touch, all right? Smashing Play-Doh together is anathema. Um, you know, it's almost heresy, but I want you to do it anyways, right? It's in your mind's eye. Mix those colors I want you to do it. Knead them together. I want you to smush them into this marbled kaleidoscope of color, reds and greens and yellows and pinks and blues, reds, intertwine them together. Now, if you can imagine this in your mind right now, if you can imagine this scenario, you're like, man, I don't have to imagine this scenario. I got a toddler who does this for me every single day, right, that we pull out the Play-Doh then what I think you can do right now is you have a good picture of what Luke is doing in these remaining stories that are before us in Luke chapter 8. Because what Luke is doing before us is he's wrapping up his focus on the Savior's great salvation. And like smushed together Plato colors, what we find in these remaining stories of Luke chapter 8 is an interwoven stories of salvation that have this kaleidoscope mixture of fear on people's parts, falling down, begging Jesus, watching his authority, responding with faith, salvation that is declared on behalf of Christ. It's like these multicolored kaleidoscope mixture of things that Luke is just expertly weaving and, and intertwining in all of these stories. You're just going to see these words popping up all over the place. We're going to discover disciples who are afraid because of what they see Jesus do alongside people who are seized with fear and ask Jesus to get out of their lives because of what they see him do. We're going to notice three different people in three different circumstances falling down at Jesus' feet. We're going to see a demoniac, a demon-possessed man. We're going to see many demons themselves and a very distraught dad are going to beg Jesus to do something in some way. With divine authority, Jesus is going to rebuke winds and water. Demons are going to ask Jesus for his permission to act in certain ways. And by his power, a woman is going to be healed and a child is going to be resurrected from the dead. Some will be saved by grace through faith in Jesus, while others are going to ask Jesus, please get out of my life. Yet in this kaleidoscope mixture before us of intertwined stories and mixed together themes, there is a singular truth that is going to shine bright for you and for me to see. And this is what Luke is ushering us to do. He wants us to see something in these words before us this morning. And it comes down to this. Jesus is the Savior that I can trust for my salvation. Jesus is the Savior that I can trust for my salvation. With the arrival of Jesus, listen, this is what Luke is leading us to say, with the arrival of Jesus, the age of God's great salvation has come. Prophets have been talking about it. Psalmists were singing about it. 
storyline of Old Testament Scripture kept pointing forward, pointing forward, saying there's coming a day when the age of God's great salvation is going to come and it will arrive and come when the Savior shows up on the scene. And Luke is expertly holding our hands and almost grabbing our eyes and pointing our face to see it is in Jesus, his arrival and the way he has authority to save in all the different ways that we need to be saved is proof that the age of God's great salvation has come. The question is, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to respond to it? And so starting in verse 22, in your copy of Scripture, we see point number one. We discover that Jesus has arrived to save from disordered creation. Jesus has arrived to save from disordered creation. You can look in your Bible, starting there in verse 22. Notice how our brother in Christ Luke writes as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. What did he say? He wrote this. One day, he, Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they're on one side of the Sea of Galilee, and he says, we're going to go to the other side of the Sea of the Galilee, and the way we're going to do this is we're going to get in a boat, and we're going to sail across this lake. So Luke says, that's what they did. They set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. The Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus fell asleep on the cushion. I like that little detail. Apparently, there was just one cushion, and Jesus got it, and he was napping out. He was tired, and so he was taking a nap. He fell asleep. But notice that as Jesus is asleep, Luke continues, a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water. The boat was filling with water and they recognized they were in danger. So they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he woke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. Now, in all four stories before us this morning, what you are noticing is this. Grab this phrase, tuck it away. You're noticing miracles of salvation. Jesus is saving people in some way. You're going to see this language a couple of times where it's going to say, and this person had been healed, or this person, the woman, was healed. The word in the original language for healed is the exact same word for saved. So Jesus is going to save people in a boat. He's going to save a demoniac man. He's going to save a little girl from death. He's going to save a woman from a disease. He's saving people left and right. These miracles of salvation, that is what Jesus is performing here over and over again. And while it's true that these acts of salvation demonstrate Jesus has authority to save, Right? We need to know, can he actually do this? Can he get this job done? These are going to demonstrate, yes, Jesus has the authority to get the job done. But notice that each one of these stories, these miracles of salvation, they also stand as proof of Jesus' identity as the Savior that we need. No one cares about a Savior who can't save. If Jesus is a Savior who cannot save, I'm done. I'm cashing in my chips. I do not want to be your pastor anymore. Why? I don't need a savior who can't save. I need to know, can the guy who says, I'm the savior who can get the job done, can he get the job done? These are evidences, proofs that he can do what saviors can do. He can save. He's the one we need. So here we are on the Sea of Galilee. We find a boat that is sailing. We find Jesus who is sleeping and we find a windstorm is blowing. So much so that the boat that he and his disciples were in was filling with water, and the obvious assessment on behalf of the disciples is this. We are in danger. I love it. Very simple, not very complex. So the disciples shake Jesus awake with a very alarmed, Master, Master, we're perishing. You need to know this. Things are not going well. If you remember this, so... I don't know how you read the Bible, but sometimes we can bring an edge of skepticism to the Bible where we're just like, I don't know, man, is Luke making stuff up to try to like, you know, make a point here? I, I think it's important to understand that for the disciples to look to Jesus and say, Master, we are in danger, we are perishing right now, 
we can grasp the fact that they were truly in dire straits because these are experienced men of the sea. Several of them were professional fishermen. Like, right? So they know the difference between a storm that has no consequence. Yeah, it's wind and there's rain and things are blowing. We're going to be okay. And they know the difference between there is wind and there is rain and we are dying. They know the difference between these things. So the fact that they are alarmed to the point where they're shaking Jesus awake and saying, you need to wake up now because we are dying in this situation, it just indicates the severity of their situation. Thus, Jesus, now fully awake, rebukes the wind, rebukes the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. I don't know what you want to do when you get to heaven, but I'm just sort of hoping there's like some home videos of this kind of stuff playing in heaven. Like, I want to see. Was Jesus like, oh, wind, rain, just oh. Like, right, he sleeps back on the cushion, poof, it just stops. Does he get up like in a very Charleston Heston sort of way, you know, like, wind and waves, oh. you know, I don't know. Like, what, what is he doing? I don't know. Does he start speaking like in old, old Victorian English, King James English? I, I don't know what he's doing. But what we do know is this, that this isn't just like, you know, there was a cloud over the sun and he speaks and all of a sudden the cloud disappears and there's a little bit of sun and everyone's like, whoa, look what he... Like, no, th- this is, there is a full-blown, like almost hurric- hurricanic type activity and he's like, you're going to stop now and... Just done. Full-blown windstorm, water, we're sinking, you're going to stop now. Done. You see, what we see in this story is a picture of the Creator ruling and reigning over His creation. What you're getting is a picture of this. Creation in this moment is disordered. Creation is not acting the way it was designed to act according to what we know in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And so in this story, we see a picture of disordered creation. In other words, we see a picture of creation not as it was designed to be, but we see creation as a result of what Adam and Eve's rebellion happened and what took place and the kind of effects that it began to spread into the whole world. Their rebellion, Adam and Eve's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, had an effect on everything. It has an effect on our mental health. It has an effect on our emotional health. It has an effect on our physical health. It has an effect on creation. It has an effect on nature. It has an effect. Every single thing in Genesis 1 and 2 gets dumped on its head when Adam and Eve said, I'm going to choose to believe Satan's lie and I would deny God's truth. And you see evidence of this kind of thing going on right now before us as the men, the 12 disciples or sailing across this boat in the Sea of Galilee. In theological terms, we refer to this event, this rebellious event where Adam and Eve say, no thank you, God, I'm going to trust the serpent's lie. We refer to this event as the fall. That's Genesis chapter 3. It's the event where Adam and Eve believed serpent's lie and denied God's truth. And one of the immediate effects of their rebellion there in the Garden of Eden is found in God's curse on creation as part of God's just judgment for Adam and Eve's sin. So now their rebellion, Adam and Eve's rebellion in the garden meant that God's once perfect universe is now a plagued universe. It is plagued not only by disease, it is plagued not only now by death, as we're going to see here shortly with the woman and with Jairus' daughter, but it is now also plagued by disorder. But the moment that you see the fall take place in Genesis chapter 3 and you see God's just judgment on creation and everything else as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion, almost as soon as you hear that judgment coming right behind it begins a whole series and a whole string of promised redemption that is going to come in some Savior who's going to come and reverse the effects of the fall. You see that as early as the back part of Genesis chapter 3. 
So starting in this event, you begin to discover pretty quickly that this disordered creation is not going to ultimately remain forever. For even in the midst of the fallout of Adam and Eve's rebellion, the language of promised salvation starts to show up all over the place. And part of God's promised salvation was to be the redemption of this disordered universe that came about as a response, as as a consequence to the fall. In other words, one day God was going to step into this creation And he was going to step into his creation as a savior, the savior he is, and he's going to reverse the effects of sin's destructive disorder. If you read the Psalms, if you read the prophets, you begin to see these little promises of gospel hope showing up all over the place. So you go to the prophets in places like Isaiah 65 verse 17 and you find the hope that a promised new creation is going to come. You go to places like Psalm 107 verse 29 and there are celebrations of Yahweh who in the redemptive history of his people rebukes storms and calms these things into breezes. This is language in the Psalms. This is language in the prophets which goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, another place where we find God doing what? Speaking words to creation with immediate effect. Yes? You see God having this kind of power. Now, what you were meant to do when you read about 12 disciples and Jesus in a boat crossing a sea of Galilee in the Near East, what you are meant to do is collapse all of these truths into that boat. You're to collapse all of these truths onto a boat that's in the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples' reaction in verse 25 then comes as no surprise when Luke says, in response to Jesus doing these things, what was the disciples? They were afraid and they marveled simultaneously freaked out and simultaneously mind blown. What in the world? This is, this is sort of undoing me a little bit. Their question says it all. In response to the man who was just sleeping on a cushion, sits up and says, wind, you're going to stop now. Rain, you're going to cease. And they obey his command is to ask one another, who in the world is this? That he commands even winds and water and they obey him. In a matter of minutes, I think the reason comes down to this. The reason why they're simultaneously afraid and marveling at Jesus in front of them is because in a matter of mere minutes, maybe even mere seconds, the 12 disciples quickly come to realize that the creator of Genesis 1 is sitting in a boat on the Sea of Galilee with them right now. And what this man who is fully God and fully man, the creator of Genesis 1, according to Colossians chapter 1, is sitting in the boat with me right now. He has just proved to the 12 disciples, Jesus has, that with his arrival, the age of God's great salvation has come. Thus, the long-promised, spirit-anointed Savior, Jesus, is the worthy object of their faith. If I am this one, of whom the prophets have been speaking, if I am this one, of whom the psalmist were singing, if I am this Genesis 1 creator sitting in the boat with you who can command winds and waves to obey, the, obey me, and they actually obey me, then what we can see and learn and the conclusion we can draw is this. As the long-promised, spirit-anointed Savior, Jesus is the worthy object of our faith. It's interesting that Jesus Ask the question there in verse 25. Do you see what Jesus asked them? Verse 25. What does he ask the 12? Where is your faith? Where is your faith at in this moment? Now, when Jesus says this, listen, when Jesus says this, I don't think Jesus is implying that they have no faith at all. I don't think Jesus is saying, where's your faith? 
It's supposed to be like, you know, 100 faith units. You have zero faith units. Why? Why, why zero should be 100? I don't think that's, if that's the category you're approaching this question, I don't think you're approaching it right. Rather, I think what Jesus is doing is he's asking, where was your faith in this particular circumstance? I know you have faith in me. I've seen your faith growing. But in this particular circumstance, when things started to get out of whack, when things started to go sideways, you went, and you ejected faith. All of a sudden, I was not worthy of being trusted in this particular moment. So he's saying, where was it in this particular circumstance? Why didn't it show up? In other words, it's like Jesus is talking to his friends and saying, listen, guys, listen. If it is true that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and if it is true that I am with you always to the end of the age, then that should count for something in this particular scenario you find yourself in right now. In the disordered chaos of sin's destruction, I am in the boat with you. I'm not standing off onto the side saying, man, I sure hope you guys get out of this. He says, I'm in the boat with you. And that counts for something. I'm not just Lord over calm seas. I'm also Lord over disordered chaos. You can trust me in this moment right now. When the disordered chaos of cancer comes your way, When the disordered chaos of suffering comes your way, when the disordered chaos of sickness, disease, death, old age, bodies not working, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes come, when things go south as a result of the fall of Genesis 3, Jesus is saying to you, I'm worthy to be trusted right now in this moment. I know every single thing right now points to Jesus not worthy, but I'm telling you, I am worthy. I'm in the boat with you. You can trust me in the midst of disordered chaos as a result of sin to be trusted right now. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? Trust me. So the salvation Jesus brings, it extends over all disordered creation. That's point number one. But not only that, we move on down the line to the demoniac, and what we see is this. The salvation Jesus brings also extends over Satan's dark kingdom. For Jesus has arrived to save from the devil. Amen? Devil. And I mean this with every ounce of the words that come out of my mouth. Our damned enemy. He's an enemy. And he's cursed. He is damned. But he is going to rage like hell to make sure he can stop as many people from being pulled into the kingdom of Christ as he possibly can. We saw this last week in the parable of the soils. Do you remember this? What we need to know is, okay, that's great. I have a Savior who can save from disordered creation, but can he save from my enemy? Is he that kind of warrior? Is he that kind of king? And right here with the demoniac, Luke is saying he is that kind of king. Look in your Bible, verse 26. Luke continues. They sailed to the country of the Gerasenes. So remember, they were on one side of the Sea of Galilee. They were sailing to the other side. The event we just read was somewhere in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, big storm. So now they've made their trip complete. They're on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're in Gentile territory. They're in the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. Luke continues, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons, plural. Luke's description shows the depths of this man's predicament. Like this isn't some guy who's got like a man cold and like a hangnail. He just needs a little bit of rest and a pair of fingernails. Like, right, this isn't like minuscule stuff. This is a man who's completely undone. You see, Luke says his nakedness. For a long time, he had worn no clothes. You see his uncleanness. He lived among the tombs and as being around death and touching things that were dead, he would have been ceremonially unclean. You mark his nakedness and his uncleanness. You couple this together with his isolation. Luke tells us that he was driven by the demon into the desert. He was isolated from other humans. He was a fragmented man with many demons having entered him. He was a man inhabited and possessed by things that were fracturing him apart. You stitch his nakedness, his uncleanness, his isolation, and his fragmentation all together, and everything illustrates and emphasizes the destructive power of evil. Evil destroys. 
evil never builds. The devil's dark kingdom promises to be light and life, but it only is ever capable of producing death. And you see it in the flesh, literally in the flesh, as you look at the demoniac man. Now notice this. This demon-possessed man simultaneously understands two things. He understands who is standing before him right now. Notice this in the scriptures. What does he say to Jesus there in verse 28? He says with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Notice this, that in the boat, the disciples are like, Who in the world is this? We don't know. The demons know. James 2 tells us the demons know Jesus fully and completely, know perfectly that He is Jesus. He is the Son of the Most High God, but yet they don't believe. He knows who Jesus is, and he knows, and these demons know who has the absolute power, who has the absolute authority. You see it in all the begging language. Notice there, on the demons speaking through the man, I beg you, do not torment me. Verse 31, it's the many demons who begged Jesus not to command them to depart into the abyss. And it continues down in the verse 32, these demons in the man are begging Jesus to let them enter a large herd of pigs. So here's the sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, the one who has power to save from disordered creation, standing before this man, an image bearer, a human being created in the image of God, possessed, indwelt by many demons. Legion says there's so many demons in there. The demons respond back with, this is our name. And Jesus is there, and they're begging Jesus, begging Jesus, begging Jesus. And so with the sovereign Lord before them, notice that they need the permission of the sovereign Lord to act. So it says there in verse 32, he gave them permission, a dead giveaway as to who has the real authority in this situation. You don't ask permission of someone that you don't need their permission from unless you know you've got the authority, I don't. I'm asking you, can I go and do this thing? This is the dead giveaway in the text of who has the authority here. You see, when you read things like this, you are most likely tempted to be like, wow, one of two things. I believe this story. But that happened a long time ago before all this modern stuff came. We're, we're way too educated to have all this demon kind of stuff going on. Or you read the story and say, we're too educated to have all this demon, spiritual forces of evil kind of stuff going on. And I, I believe that now and I believe this to be true back then. This is just, you know, make, make belief kind of things. But when you read this story of a man indwelt by unclean spirits, legion is our name. They're interacting with Christ, as they're possessing this, this image bearer, what you have playing out before us in these verses are the truths that the Apostle Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. At current play in our world today are the schemes of the devil, and one of the schemes of the devil is to try to convince us that there is no such thing as a spiritual war going on between God's good news kingdom and Satan's dark kingdom. How do I know this? Well, I know this because as recent as last night, as I was scrolling my news feed, I saw that in California, there are elementary schools that are okaying something that is being called the after-school Satan club. Why would people do that? That's no big deal. The whole Jesus stuff is just the same as the Muslim stuff. It's just the same as the Satan stuff. It's just clubs for people to get together. There's, no, there's, there's nothing... There's nothing evil or wrong or wicked about that. Within the past two, three, three or four months, I've had multiple of you come up to me saying, I don't know what just happened in Situation X, and you would describe Situation X, but you would tell me this person was a human being talking to me, but I am pretty darn convinced this was not a human being talking to me. Now, what can we do with that? We can write that off as like, wow, that's weird. Or, 
wow, maybe I've mis misdiagnosed that, or we can try to explain it away with science or just try to say there's some kind of medical issues there or whatever. I'm not denying that there are medical issues that just make people sort of, that's part of the disordered creation we just talked about. But I'm also convinced that we misdiagnose spiritual things as physical problems when what is true is this. This person has a spiritual problem. I don't know how else to say it other than that. As much as our world wants to convince itself that only the material matters, only the tangible empirical, we can crunch it in a computer, we can run it in a calculator, we can run the scientific process against it. These are the things that matter. The world wants to convince itself that this is it. This is the limitations of the world we live in. The fact remains, according to Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic power, over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Old Testament book that helps establish this would be the back half of the book of Daniel. Go and read it sometime. And you'll see the kind of spiritual forces in the war that is raging in the heavens over the souls of men and women. Listen, there are two kingdoms at war in our world right now, and you have to understand this. Your biblical worldview, you have to understand this. There are two kingdoms waging war in the heavenlies for the souls of men and women right now. One of them is Satan's dark kingdom, and the other one is God's good news kingdom. And if the Luke 8 demoniac before us right now represents anything, he is a physical representation of degraded, mangled humanity that is dead in sin. So often we don't see these kinds of things. And so we just tend to dismiss them. But God in his kindness is giving us, like if you could manifest the deadness of sin, if you want to see a citizen of hell's kingdom in the flesh, you could look to Luke chapter 8. So often we don't see this. And so what we fail to see, though, is that what we see in Luke chapter 8, this, this mangled, degraded humanity dead in sin is that we fail to see that what he is physically people outside of christ this is what they are spiritually so when you look at the demoniac and say man i don't know anyone like this well you probably don't know anyone like this physically but everyone outside of christ means they are part of hell's dark kingdom they are citizens of that kingdom and while they may not look like the demoniac man on the outside, their soul is demoniac in nature. And thus they need to be saved just as much as this man needed to be saved. This, friends, is why we need a champion. This is why we need a cosmic king. This is why we need someone who can storm the gates of hell, someone who can plunder Satan's kingdom, someone who can deliver sin-dead citizens from the devil's domain of darkness and transfer these men and women to his kingdom. This is what Dr. Luke is wanting you to see right now in this scenario. If salvation for this demoniac man is ever going to come, Luke says you need to pay attention and you need to see that it cannot and it will not come from anyone other than Jesus. Jesus is the one who can deliver. It is King Jesus who has the authority to save from Satan's dark kingdom. The demoniac man needs rescued, and the demoniac soul of your neighbor who is not trusting in Christ for salvation, they need to be rescued as well. And with Jesus' permission to the demons, yes, I am granting you permission. I don't know why, what he does with all the pigs and all these sorts of things, but in this moment, Jesus is valuing the life of this human being created in the image of God, and these demons are saying, please grant us permission to go do this thing. And he says, I give you this permission as the one who has authority over all things. This is the moment of this man's salvation, and it's in this moment that the man is rescued from the evil one. The proof of it is there in verse 35. Notice that in verse 35, to borrow language from 2 Corinthians 5, is this, the old is passed away and the new comes in the moment that he grants permission, Jesus does. And in that moment, what happens? You see this man go from a demon-possessed man and he has now become a Jesus-possessed man. 
The herdsmen went and found people in the nearby city and in the country. Upon their return, what did they do? They came to Jesus. They found the man from whom the demons had gone and noticed the absolute change in his life there in verse 35. He is now sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's now clothed and in his right mind and notice their response. They were freaked out by this. Why were they freaked out? If you go back over to verse 29, it says this, For many a time it had seized him, that's what these demons, he was kept under guard, he was bound with chains and shackles, but he would break these bonds and be driven by the demon out into the desert. People were doing everything they could possibly think of to help this man. Nothing could help. Here comes Jesus, strolls onto the shore, and says, I give permission to you demons, get out of this man. And in that moment, by his authority, they see salvation come to this man and it freaks them out again in the original language where it says there in verse 36 that this man had been healed that word that phrase had been healed is actually he had been saved jesus saved that man in that moment once possessed by demons, guards couldn't keep him, chains and shackles couldn't hold him, hold him, but then Jesus steps into his life, and in a moment, he went from damaged, deranged, dangerous, and dehumanized to wholeness, quietness, submission, and sanity. And it's this evidence of his Jesus-centered salvation that just freaks people out. Maybe you've seen this in your own life. Pre-Jesus you, running with a crowd, doing what all they did. Jesus saves you. Post-Jesus you shows up with pre-Jesus crowd, and they're just like, what in the world? Like, you used to do the thing and say the stuff and travel here and do this and chime in with these jokes and use these words and do these sorts of things. Like, just, they're, they're befuddled. They're almost dumbstruck at the word. Like, what happened to you? This once rebel, now turned evangelist, notice, leads the people to ask Jesus to depart from them. To me, in this whole episode, this is one of the saddest verses of this story. There they are before the Lord of glory. There they are before the one who has authority over heaven and earth, over creation that's been dumped upside down. He has authority over this. He has authority over Satan's dark kingdom. Here is the evidence of it before them in the former demoniac man. And they turn around and look at Jesus and say, I want you to leave now, please. And notice what Jesus does. He gives them what they wanted. Gets in the boat, and he leaves. For some there is a fear that will draw you to Jesus like the disciples. They were afraid, and they are drawn to Jesus. For some, there is a fear that will drive you from Jesus, fear that my life may change, fear that I might have to actually claim Jesus in front of friends, fear that I might lose my job, fear of this, fear of that, and that fear says, I don't want anything to do with that Jesus if that Jesus is going to have this kind of effect in my life. So that you wash your hands of Jesus and you look at him and probably very politely say, I don't know that I really want you around in my life. Thank you very much. And Jesus, at times, for reasons that are ultimately known to him, will say, I'm giving you what you want. Turns and walks out the door. But notice... That is, Jesus gives them what they want. As those crowds turned around and walked back into their cities, they are walking away from the one who has arrived to save from the devil. Lastly, notice this. Turning into the episode there at the latter part of Luke 8. Luke circles back to two more miracles of salvation. Miracles of salvation from disease and death. 
And I say he circles back to this because if you remember, these last two miracles of salvation of disease and death were the opening miracles of salvation that Chance preached for us numerous weeks ago at the very beginning of chapter 7. So like two big bookends, Luke is saying he can save from disease and death, he can save from disease and death, and then he helps us understand all these things concerning Jesus as the Savior you and I need. And so he turns us not only from the centurion servant who he saved from disease and the widow's son he saved from death, but Luke once more shows that point, final point, number three, Jesus has saved, has arrived to save from disease and death. So look at your Bible there starting in verse 40. Look at your Bible. Now when Jesus returned, so remember, they were on one side of the sea, traveled to the other side. They said, you need to depart from us, please. And he says, okay, he's getting in his boat and he's now traveled back across the other side of the sea. But when he gets out over there, notice the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there in the midst of this crowd waiting for him, there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, there's someone's falling, he implored him, there's that begging language, to come to his house. Why? Why does Jairus need Jesus to come to his house? Because he had an only daughter who was about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Any 12-year-olds here this morning? 11-year-olds? There you go. 13-year-olds? 10-year-olds? A couple 10-year-olds? Imagine if you were dying. And your daddy was distraught. This is my only child. I, I need help. I don't want to see my child die. And then the thought comes, I, I bet Jesus can help out right now. Rushes down to the seaside, pushes in among the crowd, finds Jesus, makes his way to him, throws himself down at his feet and is begging Jesus, I need you to save right now my only daughter she's dying the whole scene is just loaded with pathos notice that just as the demon possessed man had begged Jesus now a man named Jairus prostrating himself before Christ pleading for the life of his daughter but just as Luke introduces us to Jairus he does something very unexpected he interrupts the account of this salvation miracle to turn us and focus on another salvation miracle that he's going to insert right into the middle of the story the story of this woman and in a matter of a few verses we have before us the two great predicaments of sin we see disease and death does anyone here have you ever been diseased or seen someone who had a disease that they needed to be saved from i've seen it Anyone here recognize that we have one great enemy that none of us can defeat and the enemy's name is D-E-A-T-H, death? None of us are going to be able to beat that enemy on our own, in and of ourselves. Two enemies have just showed up right before us, two enemies from which we need to be saved. Jairus has an only child, a 12-year-old daughter who is dying, and the woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years had a disease that could not be healed by anyone. Both Jairus and the woman were desperate. Both were clinging to the last threads of hope, and so both found themselves before Jesus Christ. Luke says of the woman, pick it up there, and she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surrounding you are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceived that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling to Jesus. Here she is, falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And so Jesus looks to the woman and says to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. If this phrase sounds familiar, because it is verbatim, word for word, what Jesus said to the woman from the city who was the notorious sinner. Do you remember that from a couple weeks ago? 
She comes to Jesus weeping, tears on the feet, washing his feet, perfume. Remember that whole scene? Jesus says, you have been forgiven. You're not here trying to earn forgiveness. You're here because you've had your sins forgiven. And the overflow of the forgiveness of your sins is you're here pouring out your love before me. We said that she had a lavish love and Jesus assures her, your sins have been forgiven. He looks to her and says to her, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And now he's looking at this woman and he says the exact same thing to her. He speaks the exact same words of assurance. She too has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus and the evidence of her saving faith is found in her simple action of touch. Her touch is the overflow of her faith in Jesus as she entrusts herself and her healing into the all-sufficient hands of Jesus. Some of us have been there before. Disease has come in some way, shape, or form, and your answer is this. I have got no other hope. This is my only plea. I need to get to Jesus, and I need to give this over into his hands. I need him to show up. Then in a sharp switch, we notice that Luke takes us right back to Jairus. We discover that Jairus' daughter is now dead. Do you see that there? Verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered Jairus. Answering this guy, looks at Jairus and says, Jairus, here's what I want you to do. Do not fear. Only believe. Here's the faith element and she will be well. And you guys should know this by now. What does this mean? She will be saved. That's the exact language that's going on. Can you guys just for a second, we're wrapping up, we're almost done here. Can you just for a second put yourself in Jairus' shoes? I have an only child. She's 12. I love her a lot. She's dying, and I don't want her to die. I believe, I really truly believe Jesus can do something. If Jesus just shows up before she dies, she can be saved. She dies. Your soul is crushed. You might even be upset at the woman a little bit because she's the one who interrupted Jesus from being able to come and do and talk and say the kind of things that you know Jesus can talk and do and say. I don't know what's going on in Jairus' heart, but if I were Jairus, I would have an explosion of emotions right now. I would have hope. I would have crushed hope. I would be wondering, why did Jesus stop? Why couldn't he have just brushed her aside? Why couldn't he have come to me first? Why couldn't he have just spoken a word? I know what he can do. I know what he can say. I was trusting. I was not fearing. Now I'm fearing. I was believing because my daughter was alive. Now she is dead. So Jesus is saying, don't fear. I'm fearing. He's saying, have faith. My faith is wobbling a little bit. And there's just this mountain of emotion crushing in on Jairus right now in this moment. And Jesus looks at him and says, listen, do not fear, only believe, and she will be saved. And I see the question right there in verse 50, this phrase on the lips of Jesus, what is Jesus doing? Either Jesus is being overly cruel and overly harsh, and he's being just a big doofus who doesn't understand that when a dad loses their only child, they are crushed, or Jesus is speaking a compassionate word of invitation for Jairus to step into ever-deepening faith with the one who has power to save from death. See, I see the question, this phrase on the lips of Jesus in verse 50 as a compassionate invitation to ever-deepening trust in Jesus. Verses 41 and 42 clearly show Jairus' faith. But after Jairus receives news of his daughter's death, you get the sense that he's wobbling a little bit. He's starting to doubt. I don't know if I can trust Jesus anymore. And so Jesus says, don't fear, believe she will be saved. It's as if Jesus was saying something like this to Jairus in the moment. Listen, Jairus, you trusted me in what was urgent. Now I'm inviting you to trust me in what looks like hopelessness. You trusted me, Jairus, in what was alarming when she was sick. Now I'm asking you to trust me in what seems irreversible to you right now. 
You thought I was adequate in that original situation, but Jairus, what about this right now? Can you trust me right now? Can you believe that I am adequate for this very different, much more difficult situation? And in the same way, I think what Jesus is doing for Jairus, he's doing for us. And that he's posing the same statement to you and me today. You trusted me when she was alive. Now can you trust me when she's dead? You trusted me when you had wealth. Now can you trust me in your poverty? You trusted me when you had health, but can you trust me now in your cancer? You trusted me when you were young and vibrant and your body worked great, but can you trust me now in old age as your body has creaks and groans and stresses? You trusted me when life was good and you had joy, but can you trust me right now in your suffering? trusted me when life was peaceful, but can you trust me right now when life has you anxious? Do not fear. Only believe. You'll be saved. Why is the question? Why? Why should we take Jesus at his word right there in verse 50? Why is Jesus worthy of this kind of trust? Friends, the answer is in verse 54. Why is Jesus worthy of this kind of trust? The answer is there in verse 54 when Jesus takes the 12-year-old daughter by the hand and he called out saying to the child, Arise. That's why Jesus can be trusted right now. You see, Jesus is the one who can take death by the hand and command death to obey him. And if Jesus can do that, then Jesus is the Savior we can trust for our salvation. Friends, one day Jesus will banish all death. Jesus will banish all disease. Jesus will banish all hurricanes, all earthquakes, all floods, all famine. Satan himself will be overthrown by Jesus. And those who trust Jesus will be freed from the devil's power forever. Why? Because he can look at a child and say, arise. And death obeys him. If that's not an invitation to come and trust Jesus in the highs and the lows and the goods and the bads and the blessings and the curses and the joys and the sorrows and everything else you can fill in, then I don't know what else is good news for you. But it is good news that Jesus can look at the little child, grab death by the hand, and raise it up and say, death is now going to obey me. Arise. Like a dog with a bone, Jesus can look at death and say, you're going to drop this little girl right now. Death releases its grip. She is alive. And Luke, in a sense, I feel like does this, closes up his scroll, lays his pen down, and says, I've got nothing else to say to you in this sense about this little section that we have on salvation in the Lord. Now the question is, what are you going to do with what you've heard? How are you going to respond? Can you come and trust that Jesus is the Savior who can save from disordered creation the devil, disease, and death? We've had examples of faith before us. We can respond like the demoniac. We can respond like the woman. We can respond like the disciples. We can respond like Jairus. Saving faith, believe, where we can respond like the crowd and say, I don't want anything to do with this, Savior. Actually, Jesus, I need you to get out of my life right now. Turn our back and leave. The invitation for you and the invitation for me, the invitation for anyone is to enter into the kind of saving faith that Luke has been showing to us over and over and over again. Amen? Amen? We have a great Savior, yes? And He has brought a great salvation, yes? Let's pray. Christ, thank You. 
So my mind is going back to the song we sung earlier of Christ be magnified. And that's the aim. Lord, I, I grasp many words have been spoken today. But the underlying common denominator between and amidst all the words is this. Jesus is the one we can trust, I can trust to save. Lord, I am begging you to bring many who don't know this this morning. Those who are here and are like, man, I just don't know that I trust that. But I think God's doing something in me because like, I usually just sort of run from these sorts of things, but like, I, I sort of feel this strange drawing near to find more answers to my questions about this Savior who saves. Lord, that is the work of the Holy Spirit, and I ask that you would keep drawing. Lord, convince us deep in our faith like Jairus. Man, if Jesus can be trusted in X, then he can be trusted in Y, and that you would lead us into ever-deepening faith in the Savior who has the power to save. Lord, do these things. Why? For your name, for your glory, for the furthering of your kingdom here in this world. Have your way among us, King Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen.